Last year, finished good prices actually declined by a little over 1% or so. We're looking for finished good prices overall to grow about 3% this year. Okay, that's a whole yearly average of 2020. What we've seen, right, the tail end of last year and the beginning, first part of this year, is really price increases for a number of areas. Because of the number of the bottlenecks in terms of the logistics and transportation, production and manufacturing, and the economy is kind of tripping over itself, particularly on the manufacturing side. Remember I said the overall economy is growing at about 5.7%. We're looking for manufacturing overall to grow almost 9% this year. Connect, influence, optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to The Channel Channel. I'm Dale Ford, Chief Analyst at ECIA. Uh, and responsible for ECIA market research and statistics. And I'm the host of this session of the Channel Channel, a podcast sponsored by the Electronic Components Industry Association, covering topics that are important for participants in the electronic components supply chain. I'm very pleased to welcome back Tom Runowitz, Senior Principal Economist for the IHS Market Industry Service. Tom, as a senior principal for the industry service is responsible for projections about the US and Canada industrial economy, including aspects about output, prices, revenues, costs, wages, productivity, and profit margins. Tom authors sections in the IHS US Economic Industry Analysis and Pricing and Purchasing Services publications. And in addition, he's responsible for product line forecasting and consulting for clients that include many of the Fortune 500 and National Trade Association. All of this building on over 30 years of experience in economic forecasting and the consulting industry. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. So Tom, uh, as we were talking, I, I, I'm very interested. Uh, we were talking uh, about uh, manufacturing and you noted that this is a very hot topic today. And I'm excited to get into uh, addressing issues that will be of importance for uh, those listening to this podcast. I wanted to begin, however, with uh, some, some very important predictions, I believe, that were published back in December by IHS Market. And I thought it might be an opportunity to perhaps visit the status of those predictions and perhaps elaborate on some of them as they relate to manufacturers. So maybe just at a very top line, uh, IHS market stated that their expectations for a successful widespread COVID-19 vaccination program and that that will enable a transition to post-pandemic economic growth of four and a half percent. Any comments on just that top line overall outlook uh, for this year? How's things shaping up with that? Actually, it's been revised up quite a bit. There's been a lot going on with the Biden stimulus that we have. Uh, with the COVID vaccinations happening at a more rapid pace. Uh, there's been a lot of energy and a lot more uh, boost to the economy. So now we're looking at for to this year, for 2021, for the, economic, for the whole economy to grow to 5.7. So that's a considerable revision wow. upwards. 
Not only that, we're looking for a residual effect in terms of it also feeding into 2022, and we're looking for over 4% growth in 2022. So this year and next will be definitely, will have a boost overall because of the, the rapid, you know, um, vaccine administration, you know, uh, vaccines that we've seen, and also because of the, the, the Biden stimulus that we're, that, that is coming out now, it's been approved. Oh, that's very encouraging. That's, yeah. that's yes. great news to begin the podcast. Everybody will be happy to hear 5.7% in the outlook. That's outstanding. Now, there's an issue that I think many of our members are not familiar with, and, and I'd like to explore this a little bit. They noted that investors are going to be shifting their focus from COVID-19 to the impact of climate change. And the expectation is that the trend in what they call ESG issuance in the coming year will become important. So maybe we can do a little bit of a tutorial here for our listeners and begin just by describing what, what is ESG, what do those initials stand for, and what's driving this? Where did it start? What's driving this? Why is it being promoted? Well, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Actually, it's corporate governance. And really what that does is that gives you a good perspective of an overall sustainability of a firm or a company. Because not only do you have to look at profits in terms of short-term profits, in terms of how your profitability or expectations are maybe this year over the next few quarters, but now the issue is, is what's this look more like over the long term? Environmental issues, of course, when you look at that, you're looking at environmental change, you're looking at energy costs, you're looking at pollution, you're looking at all different kinds of aspects, which may come back further down the road to impact the bottom line or the financial aspects of it. Same thing with social aspects of it, how they open up for lawsuits, what do they do to society, what are they, how are they impacting, how do they involve people in terms of either racial equality, how they look in terms of uh, all terms of this aspects of it. And also what you're looking at it in terms of governance, in terms of corporate governance. Remember, we're not in independent silos, we're not on islands. Corporations are part of the economy. They contribute to government revenues. They contribute to all aspects of it. How are they as a responsible citizen of the United States and how do they lead that through? So there's all kinds of aspects that you have to do that. Now, a lot of these, when you're looking at ESG, some of these are not as quantitative defined as you would as a total financial bottom line, but there are rating systems in there and a number of rating systems are now starting to come out and corporations and anybody with long-term foresight is looking at these in terms of a leader in terms of how's this company going to be down the road five years from now? How are these aspects going to be involved? So it really is more of a long-term perspective, more than just a dollar value bottom line within the short term that you're looking at. You, you mentioned the scores, and it's interesting. As we're quantifying this. I've seen reported somewhere where businesses that perform well with their ESG rating are experiencing better business performance compared to their peers with those stronger ESG ratings. Is that what you've seen or observed? Absolutely. And remember, business performance is long-term. 
you may win the bottom line or be very profitable over the next few quarters, but what's that really mean? You know, so people are looking at it in terms of how are they looking at it two, three years, five years down the road. Some people even have a longer horizon in terms of 10 years down the road. How mm -hmm. do they want to position themselves? Prime example of the automobile industry right now, all right? They're focused on electric vehicles, okay? And that whole aspect of it is they're seeing way down the road, even though electric vehicles is a small percentage of their overall market right now, they're looking well further down the road into 2025, 2027, and so on. And when you're looking at uh, telemarketing, okay, or not telemarketing, a telecom industry, they're looking even further down the road when the issue is of real 5G, when it comes on, when, it can, when you can have autonomous vehicles and, and all sorts of controls and information. So they are the real visionaries in seeing what's going on. And ESG really plays a role into that. Let's expand a little bit on, you know, you go to automotive and that takes us into the manufacturing sector. So, you know, that sounds like a very positive impact in the automotive space now. Obviously, I think ESG can have potential impacts on the, the energy picture. Um, you know, you, you've got your group, in fact, in promoting um, the, the latest Sarah Week, which is where all the top executives and players in the energy industry come together. They noted that the, the dramatic transformation the in, energy industry is going through. And I think ESG probably plays a role in that. So if you were to discuss the impacts on this <clears throat> related to factors, like energy that really impact the manufacturing sector, what do you see in that, that area? Well, a couple of issues. Um, a lot of it is right now in terms of power generation, and you're seeing big transformations from either coal-fired plants into natural gas in that sense, you being much more efficient where you have pipelines feeding right into a national natural gas pipeline feeding into a, 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 an electric power plant. Uh, you see all kinds of new pipeline activity in terms of shipping either natural gas to their end markets where they can refine it into petrochemicals and plastics or oil production, you know, extracting oil rather than loading it in, spilling it in, in terms of on, on train cars and so on, putting it in and doing it on a pipeline. We even deliver it to the refining process. So there's all kinds of areas where you are gaining efficiencies economically, but also gaining efficiencies where you are being more environmentally conscious too. And also too, you have ratings in terms of fuel consumption, which are always, you know, on the motor vehicle side have always been increasing. And now they may well be accelerating with the, you know, with the, the you know, the concentration on EVs and so on. So there's all kinds of areas where you are seeing increases in efficiency and consumption and also power generation in that respect, because renewables are also a, a big key. And the price of renewables in that whole aspect has really dropped quite a bit. So those gains are actually on the profitable side in many areas. Okay, interesting. So, you know, my, my thought is that we probably won't see um, uh, uniform implementation of ESG across ar around the world in various regions and economies. My guess is that perhaps the U.S. and other Western economies might be more focused on on, on adopting this uh, compared to, say, China. Uh, any thought on how 
varying implementations might impact uh, compet competitive uh, dimensions in the manufacturing. Yeah, that's that's difficult to measure because right now, you know, in a, in accounting, you really have a clear cut measurement in terms of the bottom line, and that's the whole, you know, focus of the accounting the the accounting industry is they are able to count dollars or whatever or euros or whatever and add it up and, and come to a bottom line, very precise and very quantitative. When you get into the ESG, a lot of times it's more subjective, okay, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And there's no clear code or, or uniform code that you can do right across the board on a global basis as you would in general accounting practices and so on. So that will have to develop over time where it becomes more uniform. But even now when people are looking in Asia and so on, China still, they're, they're, they're focusing on with all, the, they're focusing on also electric vehicles in many areas too, because they are realizing their environmental quality is dis, disintegrated or degenerated many times. Uh, we'll see what happens. Remember when they had the Olympics, they actually had to turn down some, some, some power generation plants and some other plants going around Beijing uh, because there was just too much pollution for the Olympics. So they are not on the scale of the US. You or Europe may even be well ahead of the US in this respect, but they're not on the scale of many of the Western Asia, nations, but they are indeed paying attention to it and, and, and catching up. India will have to do it also in that respect right. because they're, they're a very fast and growing, growing economy. Great. Maybe we can shift gears to a, a very important topic for manufacturers. And, and this was highlighted uh, in a presentation that I delivered last week to our members. You know, one of the predictions is that they said that finished good prices are expected to accelerate in 2021, that um, things will be pushed out for the next six to nine months, but then they expect pricing to come up. Now, in the electronics components industry, we've seen Due to various factors, lead times push way out in semiconductors and passive components, et cetera. And that's always an indicator that you're also seeing strong upward price pressure in that in those supply chains as well. And, and it would be very interesting to discuss how do you see pricing trends playing out uh, as it relates to the manufacturing space, raw materials, key components in the manufacturing space. Now, you have to really understand, you know, when you get caught in the trenches, a lot of times your perspective kind of gets lost. You know, last year, we actually had unfinished good prices actually declined, believe it or not. They declined a little over 1% or so. We're looking for finished good prices overall to grow about 3% this year. Okay, that's a whole yearly average of 2021. What we've seen, right, the tail end of last year and the beginning, first part of this year, is really price increases for a number of areas because a number of the bottlenecks in terms of the logistics and transportation, there's a lot of bottlenecks in terms of production and manufacturing and the economy is growing and it's kind of tripping over itself, particularly on the manufacturing side. Remember I said the overall economy is growing at about 5.7%. We're looking for manufacturing Okay, manufacturing overall to grow almost 9% this year on a volume basis. Nine? Is that that's the US number? US. Or is that global US. Number? That's no, the US. That's US manufacturing growing at 9% this year. So there is a lot of 
people investing. There's a lot of people and uh, companies producing in terms of, you know, product, not only in terms of non-durables, but in terms of the durable investment items. They're really getting automobiles that were going to be up like 20. Well, they were down 20% last year, so they're up 30% this year. So you have a big, you have a big increase, but also you have increases in, you know, machinery, you have big increases in, in all aspects of, you know, the durable goods items, the big ticket items, or the heavy, the heavy manufacturing items too, particularly this year, right? What, so what you're seeing is many bottlenecks and you're seeing some price increases. On top of that, you're seeing price increases that feed into some of the construction side. The, the non-res side is weak, of course, from the fact you know, from offices and retail side kind of collapsing. But the, but the residential side is growing probably about 14% this year. Not, you know, single unit residential is really hot. Okay. Impressive. So you're seeing lumber prices and all that aspect and windows and glass and all those supplies that go into the single unit housing. You're seeing bottlenecks and people complaining of, of material price increases there. The same issue that you're seeing on a lot of the manufacturing side with respect to metals, electric components, and so on is because the production activity is so strong and you're getting some bottlenecks in terms of the transportation and availability of it. However, though, those will catch up. So once those bottlenecks get alleviated, preferably toward the second in the summer and the second half of this year, we'll start to see some weakening and a lot of those prices start to fall. So what we're seeing is now because of the big rush in production, you're seeing a lot of strength in demand. You're seeing bottlenecks. You're seeing people raising prices because they're not available. And what you're doing is you're seeing strong price increases and people complaining. What you'll do is you'll see some weakening and slowdown in the pricing growth in many areas in the second half of this year and particularly into 2022. And we actually have uh, finished good prices in only increasing about 2% in 2022. So you're talking about a big slowdown in those areas. Now you have to look at it. These are commodity, these are prices of finished goods, intermediate goods and so on that get in the production cycle. When you're looking at the overall CPI, we're really not worried at all in terms of uh, inflation at all. In fact, the overall CPI, we're still between maybe this year between uh, two and 2.5% anticipated that. You have to remember the big driver for a long-term inflation that we saw back in the 70s and so on is wage growth. Not, not commodity growth, not material growth, it's wage growth that really drives that long sustainability where people get worried about inflation, okay? Mm -hmm. Once we're, we're seeing that a spike now in many areas in terms of commodities, those can fluctuate. And as, as the production cycle and as the logistics cycle starts to address and alleviate itself, you'll see those prices weaken and those prices price strength slow down in many areas. So I'm not really worried at overall a big term. This is badly and maybe a, a six month issue or so that we're, that we're looking for in terms of price increases now. That's interesting because there's something, I guess I've got some cognitive dissonance here with what you're saying here and some other things going on. IHS Market publishes their Purchasing Managers Index, their PMI data, and um, <clears throat> there's record performance there in the global and in the U.S. PMI data. 
And they make a comment there that they see global inflationary pressures at the highest level since 2008. On the other hand, the Fed has signaled its plan to maintain interest rates at their very low levels. And so yes. you're talking about inflationary issues being very moderate. On the other hand, the PMI index is, is kind of pointing in another direction. Can you the, start that out for us? The PMI is exactly what's currently happening. And that's what you're seeing now. But further down the road, they look looking for those, those pressures to alleviate and diminish. That's why the Fed is not worried about it, inflation right now. And they're not worried about you know, raising interest rates. If anything, they may well raise our our, our Fed watchers are looking for interest rates to start raising around 2023, 2024. Okay, so we got a few years of these low interest rates continuing, right? The Fed's not worried in that aspect. They are seeing the same thing that we are anticipating is, is that the price pressures that we're seeing now will not continue. It'll start to alleviate and then, and then uh, we'll see some normal price, you know, price growth going into the backside of this year going into 2022. Oh, good, good. That's helpful to have that perspective. So related to all this, another key forecast that was that the US dollar would weaken in 2021. And of course that plays into to this whole issue of pricing and also US competitiveness on the world stage. How do you see the, the weakening US dollar impacting US manufacturing? In fact, right now, um, we have changed and revised our forecast and the people that talk about the the international aspect of the the exchange rate versus our major trading company countries uh the dollar is just about as weak as it's going to go and they're actually looking for a long-term kind of you know moderate increase or slow increase in the dollar rather than weakening so basically anticipating the dollar has bottomed out one of the reasons is the U.S. economy growing at a 5.7% rate is one of the highest growing in the world right now compared to Europe. I mean, you have China and India that are growing that, that normally grow much faster than the U.S. Okay, those, you know. But when you look at us compared to Europe, compared to Canada, compared to Mexico and many other countries around the world, the U.S. is the hot economy. Okay, so what is done is, is you're seeing a little bit of growth in terms of some of the, the interest rates, not the Fed rate, but overall interest rates, and you're seeing a slow rise in the US dollar from now through, through much of next year. So that we're seeing is, is changing, okay? So okay. that'll help out a little bit on the inflation side, but also too, it impacts the import-export trade issue too. So okay. we're not looking for strong increases in the dollar, but the dollar basically bottoming out now and starting to increase at a, at a, at a, at a slow rate, kind of growing. Okay, great. So we've changed that. In fact, that's just, just been changed in a discussion about that has just occurred with the March forecast that we've done. Great, great. Um, moving to another topic, <clears throat> we have concerns related to critical supply chains in the US they've now captured attention at the highest levels all the way up to the president. And we've now got an executive order from President Biden for a 100 day review of critical supply chains. Eric Schmidt has put out a very detailed proposal with a group that he leads about managing US-China uh, trade relations and the supply chain there. 
so <clears throat> clearly the government is looking at what role it can and should play in the supply chain. What, what actions do you think the US government could take that would be beneficial for the US manufacturing economy? And what, what would potentially be harmful if they got involved from your view? Yeah, and actually in terms of development, what would the US would be is, is to be as open as possible in terms of talking about fair trade with respect to Asia or Europe and so on. But what you have to realize, the limitations of the government is only so much. Really, the process is, is looking at individual companies and corporations where their supply chain is. That's where they have to focus on. So, you know, the, a government can only kind of point you in the proper direction. They really can't set the stage of overall for you to diversify a, a supply chain. What a company has to do is realize where my bottlenecks, if I'm having problems getting, let's say, um, uh, you know, semiconductor chips, or I'm having problems getting, you know, um, a certain type of metal, you know, ferrous metals, if I'm having problem getting gears, if I'm having problem getting other areas in terms of the production for my production cycle, okay, how do I alleviate those problems? Where can I diversify my supply chain the most. So if there's a problem in Asia, a problem here in the United States or a problem in Europe, that I can redirect my supply chain, okay? Because remember, if you have it all in one area, you're high at risk. If, if something happens and you can't get your product, then you're thrashing around trying to find it. So what you need is multi levers to be able to say, if I'm having a problem here, I can redirect my supply chain to let's say Central America or South America, I can redirect my supply chain to Europe and so on. So that's what you really need. And any company that really doesn't focus on that is at risk in terms of the supply chain of what we experienced. And the whole COVID area and, and the pandemic situation that we've seen really taught many corporations a lesson because of the bottlenecks they've seen. I mean, with the, with the problem with the pandemic in Asia, it was a shutdown in many areas. They couldn't get product. Okay. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Europe. They shut down in Europe. They couldn't get product. Okay. Now there's a transportation. Now that you know the production cycle in many areas is starting to increase, there's a transportation bottleneck. Even though they're producing in Asia, they can't get it in the ships, and the ships are now you know anchored off of like off of Long Beach, kind of waiting to be unloaded. And not only that, you have supply chain issues here in the United States, maybe with driver shortage in terms of trucking. So there's many areas what you really have to look at is how can I minimize my risk? Because to have it just in Asia or just in Europe really will not help you know, your, your production over the long term. It really has to be well diversified. It's just like in a stock market. You don't want to invest in all in one area. You don't want to have your supply chain in all in one area too. The best portfolio and the best supply chain management is one that can really be diversified and have it as directly as many areas as possible. So they can use the options, go to plan A, go to plan B, can plan C and so on without having a crisis in terms of, or shutting production lines down because you can't get the particular supplies. Interesting. So. That, that kind of explains a bit. Uh, it's interesting, IHS Market also publishes this COVID-19 
containment index and comparing that to global PMI. And so there very much is, is, continues to be an important correlation there between how things play out with containing COVID-19 and, and economic growth and specifically in the manufacturing sector. So that kind of ties into what you're saying there, right? Absolutely. And the containment index is, is actually almost the opposite direction that you have for, for the, uh, the PMI. The PMI, the higher the number, the, co the containment index is the lower amount of containment, the, the, the more free the economy is. Basically, zero containment means there's no, um, uh, zero containment index means there is basically no restrictions at all, okay? The higher the restrictions, whether you have restrictions on, you know, non-essential businesses, you have restrictions on schools, you have restrictions on travel or whatever, then you end up with a higher containment index. So if you look at the two charts in terms of a reverse, they almost do match very well in terms of that aspects. And you can see the freer the economy, the, the better that you can in terms of growth. In fact, you look at it, you know, uh, look what happened last spring uh, when you had the auto plants shutting down, okay? <laughs> Manufacture, I mean, it collapsed basically. I mean, they, they shut down. They had shutdowns not only in that in the auto plants, but they had shutdowns in Boeing. Besides the additional problems that they had with the seven threes, you know the um, the you know they had shutdowns in many areas. You had shutdowns in the uh, in 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 the uh, the meat processors too. So there was many areas where you had a, a containment index that was high, where you had shutdowns, and it had totally affected the manufacturing process. Right. Right. Well, maybe we could wrap up just one last issue. I mean, you've addressed, you know, I think the, the, the most important issue related to COVID-19 impact and, and diversifying in the future. Just a final question topic. What do you think are the most important changes? We've already addressed COVID, but beyond that, what other important changes, trends do you think we'll see in the U.S. manufacturing economy this year and next? And, what should manufacturers and distributors do in addition to diversifying? How should they change their operations to be best positioned for this economy over the next year or two? Well, one thing is, is in terms of most manufacturers, we are a global economy, not only in terms of services, but also definitely in terms of manufacturing. So as I said before, diversify internationally as much as you can, you're, you're global global supply chain. We have seen a lot of a, a lot of interest in reshoring, okay? People coming into the United States saying, you know, I don't trust Asia, but just basing it totally in the United States is not the answer because you can also have supply chain issues here in the United States, okay? So if, if you can go to the United States, maybe you can go to Mexico or Canada, all right? But also too, when you look at the, the whole production cycle here is they are looking in terms of energy efficiency. They are in terms of, you know, not keeping inventories, keeping inventories at a minimum, okay? Not having too much. One of the issues is if I have problems with my supply chain, you measure build an industries, but, but inventories, but in inventories are also costly to build up. So you really have to get an overall perspective and flow of what's going on. Now this year, manufacturing is gonna, like I said, is gonna be hot, close, close to 9% growth or 9% growth that we have. That's, that's the strongest growth we have seen in years, okay? 
and yeah. next year should be still pretty pretty healthy. Okay, so overall, you know what you have to do is realize you can't all of a sudden just ramp up production. And in terms of anticipating, it's you know it's it's like boomer bust in that Kent. You have to kind of really almost moderate your growth in terms of what's going on, in terms of capacity expansion, in terms of investment in, in equipment and so on, and realize that kind of like the aspect of when you're looking at ESG, you really have to grow over the long term because how do you want to be competitive internationally and how do you want to be competitive from a pricing perspective and be able to be competitive in terms of not only looking at you know, looking at uh, a competitive advantage here in the US, but being competitive advantage in terms of on a global basis, in terms of exports. You know, our US chemical industry, especially pet uh, petrochemical industry, which is focused really as a, as a um, feedstock of natural gas that feeds into, is extremely competitive in, compared to the rest of the world. And where they are able to do is they are able to use the lower price natural gas feedstocks compared to, to oil as, as, a, as, a, as a basic driver to be extremely competitive and being extremely profitable in terms of exporting a lot of the you know petrochemicals and resins and plastics and everything else that go into that. So the long-term aspect really has to be taken more of account from, from a manufacturing. And not only that, from an overall, uh, you know, any corporation from an ESG perspective. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've really benefited from your knowledge and expertise and insights. I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me today and to uh, cover these topics of great importance. And with that, we'll uh, bring this uh, uh, episode of the Channel Channel to a close. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you.